<laughs> Welcome, everybody. It's time for Podcast with Paul. Oh, look, it's great. We can learn more of our social skills. We can get attuned to our own feelings. We might even get attuned to the feelings of others. <laughs> Wouldn't it be great to know how to deal with all these difficult people that come into our life? I certainly like to. You know, those difficult people who mess with your head, they tend to block your enjoyment in life. I just like to learn to be free and happy and just to be. I'm sure you do too. Who wants complainers? Who wants show-offs? Who wants drama queens? Who wants self-promoters? No, we want fun. We want healthy relationships. Hey, you can have them. They're yours to have because you deserve them. How do we get them? It's Podcast with Paul. Welcome, everybody. Oh, thank you for staying with us, listeners. Look, uh, Nathan's an interesting person, but this next episode is really, really an honest look at lots of things. We're going to talk about my father and my relationship with him, and obviously we're going to talk about relationships with our parents, and we're going to listen and learn about Nathan's mother. And really, we're going to go and have a deep look at addiction. I mean, that's a hard conversation for anyone. But we're going to share about how to deal with addiction in our lives. And I know that maybe... There's some listeners out there that always have, do also have some issues around addiction. How do we cope and what's our best way of dealing with those things? And how can we share from a place of honesty and authentic, authentically, but also from a place where we can cope and look at it in a bright way, not in a sad way, not in a way where we become victims, but in a way of coping and sharing and understanding and looking forward to a new insight and a new way of, of looking at where the problem of addiction might lie in our lives. Welcome everyone to a very serious but very wonderful conversation with Nathan, episode two. I remember in my own situation, I have a, I have a rather um, traumatic uh, memory around my father and, and some of the expectations that he had of me that I knew I couldn't meet and that there was a mm-hmm. gap between our, between our relationship that never really resolved itself. So... I didn't feel close to my father. And now looking back, like you say, you can look at photographs now. Now, he's he's passed now, but I can look back at that and think in memory that, oh, I wish, I, I wish it had been different. Mm. But now I'm thinking, just a minute, if I was to think of that in a place of gratitude, the fact that he was there and the fact that he cared and the fact that I know that he took me to places and I know that he, he pushed his, his love onto me, sometimes in a way that was most unusual... For, for how it felt, but I acknowledge that he was there. And yet he was there enough to have cared. And and then I think, well, just a minute, how did who taught him to love? Mm. And how, how much did he know? And yes. what sort of history did he have? My dad went to prison and spent two years as an 18-year-old in prison for robbing a train. Now, that would have affected him, obviously, in, in, in the way he could deal with life. But then he found my mother, who was in the Salvation Army, and then... They got married and my sister and I were born. Now, that whole story is 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 in itself, you know, unusual, but there would have been a, a lot of a pain body that was coming through my father and a lot of expectation maybe that he didn't want to carry forward, so he was trying to maybe deal with the fact that he had gone to jail and, and had that 
rough rough time in, in his life. So I was wondering with, with you, with the past and how you have had trauma in your life, I, I know that you're, a, you're an actor, you're a singer, you're a poet, you're a musician... <laughs> you you you've touched a lot of things in 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 what you've done, yes. And then you've gone and become fluent in Japanese, which not everyone in the world can do. But you've gone and lived in Japan, married in Japan, and now fluently living a, a Japanese life. I mean, you you were fluent in Japanese, but living a life in Japan with mm-hmm. beautiful children. So that whole place of where your past trauma, because I know that when I met you, mm-hmm. you had you had experienced some some difficulty in childhood. And then, um, obviously, your mum wasn't well, mm-hmm. and she passed when you were. How old were your mum when you when your mum passed? I would have been twenty five. Twenty five. So again, I went to the the funeral with you, and you sang at your mum's funeral, and I was always fascinated at your ability to to come to terms with with all of that. And you were probably surprised at yourself that you could come to terms with it. But are you still coming to terms with it, or do you, do you understand yourself around that? I think at the time singing at mum's funeral looking back it was what i was doing to try and keep it all together and then because i was put on such a a heightened space around it because i suddenly came back from japan i was with her in the hospice for the last eight to ten days i really was actually quite almost had to be on a higher level of hyper-awareness to get through the period. Then returning back to Japan, I think I was still trying to heal. You know, I was still dealing with that. I hadn't truly dealt with it. So it has taken years to actually process that and to come to terms also growing up and living with with a parent with mental health challenges. I think in 1987... When I was one years old, she would she would have been diagnosed at the time with manic depressive disorder, and then later on would be called bipolar. And growing up with a parent who wouldn't just change a little bit, but change a lot, once or twice a year, depending on the severity and what happened, was was quite now looking back was there was a lot that i had to be hyper aware of all the time you know is is mum going to get sick soon will she hurt herself soon am i safe and then i didn't know i was dealing with all that this is now as an adult i look back and see that and i found documentation again whilst cleaning the family photos and actually court documents and affidavits i now see that she wasn't she was also an adult woman she was my mother, but she was going through what she was going through. The, the sudden death of her mother, finding out family secrets, and she had a breakdown. And we're in a very different climate and era now where we're more open talking about these things and hopefully preventative measures and ways. But in 1987, people did the best they could and really tried to support mum. But yeah, I, I guess it, I sometimes had flashbacks and then I would get actually going back to finding out the source of those flashbacks and irritability and anger towards thing which something which is seemingly not dangerous because I had a flashback of a memory that was scary. I would then lash out at others. So that was even 
the past was impacting my present. Mm, mm. Interesting. I think a lot of your trauma and the way you've dealt with your journey, I remember you, know, you would come and visit me and tell me the stories about the recent dangers or the the recent nine lives that you went through and you, mm. you got so close to the trouble again and sure, and sure. you were dealing with, with with what you're dealing with just to go back to mum's funeral I mean, and, and you were singing yeah something that i noticed about that when i did have a conversation about why you thought it was okay to sing yeah you said to me something on the day that i thought was interesting but you might not have known she said okay you, you said mum mum liked me when i sang Mm. And she was proud of me when I sang, and I used to sing Elvis Presley to her, and I used to sing, right. And she was really, really happy that I was singing. And yes. I thought to myself, I think that might have kept you in a place where you were strong enough. To, oh, music for is, mum's sake. Music, music is still. When you're a child, any child, and you see a parent or a loved one or a family member or a friend suffering, we actually, children try and make people smile. Here we are wearing these laughter project badges and smiling. Children, when they see someone who is not happy, will try and make them smile if they have that awareness and they're comfortable themselves. So i never forget, I, I had to visit my mother in, in a mental health ward by court order. So Glenside now ironically is turning into a film studios but i had to go to glenside my dad would drop me off and i would go inside by myself four or five years old right and i wasn't scared because my mum was there and i was four or five right but my dad i learned recently used to cry in the car park because he knew what i was going to be exposed to and the types of things i would see and he was extremely worried about the impact that would have but it was a court order but i loved it I, I met so many characters. I met Shakespeare 25 times. I'd met Jesus 50 times by the time I was six. You never know and, who you're going to say hello to. And I never forget, there was a group of people that were very upset and they were all smoking rollies. They had yellow fingers and they looked very down and were probably on a lot of medication, I think, at the time. And I wanted to pep them up. So I stood, on, stood up on this table and saying, well, it's one for the money. And my pants fell down. <laughs> right? And everyone started laughing. Oh. And I'll never forget that because a group of people that were were upset and it is very revealing. It is very revealing to be in some of those places as a visitor or a staff. Most member. definitely, most definitely. And you see you see a very raw yeah. place of where the hum human condition can go and yes yes you see a lot of truth and a lot of you know confusion but you also see people who are struggling mm -hmm. but in the way that they're struggling it's like, okay people can also um, share the struggle and you can see the struggle and help and, and maybe try to understand it mm -hmm. and then obviously the the system back then was okay mum you're now not coping you need to go into this hospital where people were are trying to deal with a what's called a mental mental disorder. So yes. back then that was what we didn't probably talk about it like we do today. And obviously different ways of of dealing with what's called a mental disorder, whatever that is. But it is to do with health. Yes, I was interested in the idea that when we have a health problem, if we have a health problem in our stomach, or if we have a health problem in our in our feet, or would we have a health problem? 
well, why can't you have a health problem in your mind? And yeah. if your mind has a health problem, then it's there is ways of dealing with that. Yes. And I know that sometimes we mask ways that we could deal with it. And I know that you have you have in your journey been exploring different <laughs> ways of dealing with with your uh, mind problems that you know that you that you've had, and you've shared some of those things with me. Yes. Now the masking or, or the dealing with the pain, and when you when the pain of the realization of, of trying to cope, I know that you've gone through an amazing transformation of, of recent years because you've had to deal with mm. uh, what you know is an addiction to you because you got addicted to, to drinking. Yeah, I would say it was beyond an addiction. It was a major coping mechanism. It wasn't just because I was happy or sad or elated or scared. It was just what I did. And it was often to the level of a total binge. You know, the worst would be three to four days. I wouldn't remember where I'd been, what I've done. But I would have scratches on me and I would have spent copious amounts of money and put my, basically now I reflect, Paul, put my life in danger. Mm. Very, very dangerous. A number of times you had car accidents where <laughs> the, the, you, I, you used to rig me up Uh-oh. after you had it a binge. And I, said, I <laughs> and I think you drove your dad's BMW home without a tire on it. I don't and really it was want to talk about it. Was scratched, it, was, it was scratched all along the road. And it, we went back to have a look at where you'd come from. And it was like incredible that you got away with that. I'm not going just, to mention the make and model of the year of that because that would put me into criminal liability. <laughs> Um, but let's the things you did. Let's what about what about the accident you had with the wall, and then the poor old lady come out with it who owned the wall, and she started feeling sorry for you. <laughs> you, you. You got away with that one and left this crime, the crime scene before anyone rocked up, and the car was what left in front of the yard or something. I, 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 lots of stories, but anyway, um, you survived somehow, and it's something about your nine lives and you're a very interesting person that, that you survived. Tell me, was was age, you know, what do you think is saving you or did save you? Or is, is it the love of another or love of yourself or is it the realisation that you that you can't choose that anymore? I mean, what's been the biggest or is there something that you can say that's helped you to deal with that? Because obviously people might be listening to this podcast and say, I know I have addiction issues mm-hmm. and people can mm-hmm. be... I think people need to say, I, I understand my addiction issues so I'm, I'm, I confront them and embrace them as part of who I am. Do I want to deal with them? And if I do want to deal with them, I have to accept that they exist firstly. So I need to you know, be aware that I do have a problem and that I need to address it. So that's the whole idea of addiction and, and being honest with oneself. Have you managed to be more honest with yourself recently and, and that that's why you're coping as you are with your addiction to, to, to uh, drinking? Firstly, I, I think we all just want to acknowledge, I think we all cope with and deal with addiction or challenges differently and this is purely speaking upon the experience that I've had so I don't want anyone to think this is the way or that's the way but I think I was first hospitalized from alcohol poisoning when I was about 14 15 years old I was rushed to Royal Adelaide and was almost clinically dead with the amount of alcohol that was in my system I had to have I think flushed with charcoal or something And I still remember lying in Dudley Park in my mum's house, feeling extremely wasted and sick. But that didn't stop me. I think the next night we're drinking Old Crow and 
support from a flag or whatever else is going on. And then I had went through periods of sobriety, of stopping and sure I'd never drink again. I'd write these journals. And the scary thing is if I read all these journals, it's a, re it's a repeating pattern. Drunk, 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 drunk. Crazy, 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 loose. I'm so sorry, everyone. I'm sorry to myself. I'll never do this again and do it again. So it was very cyclic, which is quite scary when I look back on the journals that are all there. There's a lot of journaling. But something happened last year. I just went out on a drink again by myself. Our daughter was at home. My wife was at home and she was two at the time, our daughter. And I just went out for casual drinks, convenient to convenience store drinking nine percenters and somehow ended up in an abandoned building in the in the cellar like in the basement of this abandoned apartment building in japan very decrepit like from the 80s and i had my backpack and i had everything so i went out of the back the cellar and all the rooms were empty so it's totally abandoned apartment i just was so scared and I realized if I don't do something, if I don't try, I'm not going to see my our daughter grow up. I'm not going to be here on planet Earth alive anymore. And even if I am, it's not going to be a very high quality of life. So it was first, I was absolutely so scared. So I, I went home. And in Japan, I, I'd been to the psychiatrist before and it, was, it wasn't very helpful. They just gave me medication. You need medication with counseling. Without the counseling, it won't work. So I went to betterhelp.com and I'm not being paid for this to plug them, but I got a counselor in America from Louisiana and I spoke with her once a week every Thursday and it held me accountable. And I also had a very close friend who also has been through addiction challenges with alcohol and he guided me through as well. And things just changed from that once a week showing up for six months and it's not even like i used to be fighting with the idea of oh, i want to drink i want to drink but i can't but that thought is gone which i never th which i never thought would happen because it's finally acknowledging that if you keep doing the same thing over and over again and it keeps happening probably best to to stop trying to kind of beat yourself and one up because I was one, trying to one up myself you can do it you can do it do it here or drink this nice label or go to a secluded place in the end I was going by myself alone to the countryside alone by myself away from my family because I was probably so concerned about if I was in the city I would cause some kind of disturbance so get away from everyone and just do it in the countryside where nobody knows you which is quite scary because once again alone running away from people Mm. Well, that's uh, that's some really deep sharing and some sharing from the, the heart and soul of who you are. And I know that must be a challenge to you. It is. Nathan, <laughs> but to share that and and the freedom around how you can share it, and you, and you have shared that with me before, and you, uh, you have shared the whole story with me, so I think you, you have the capacity to be honest to yourself. And I think that's, a f that's, a f that's the, first, the first place of... of understanding where you're coming from and why you're coming from that place is to be honest and mm. all through the, all through your journey with me we've always managed to have an honest conversation 
and that's been really really appreciative in a friendship sense because there was no place of hiding behind anything it was saying this is what yep. i'm struggling with this is what i'm dealing with this is this is what's happening and i think uh, i can see in you a, a, a shift and it's not that that struggle doesn't continue because obviously it's always <laughs> going to be there and it's not, not it's not something that you can say you've you've climbed that mountain it's a continuous climb and it's the journey of life mm. but the fact that you may have had to choose others rather than yourself is a very interesting place because mm. the minute we choose another's choose others aren't we going to a place where we're not making it about ourselves and we're not being that selfish self-centered individual who wants to run away because it's our what we want yeah so the minute you say i'm going to give up it's all about me and step into a place of going no i'm going to help others and share others and to actually be there for others to truly love someone else is to is to be as selfless as that and so you actually demonstrated when you were in that uh, we're down in the the building that you were in the downstairs there yeah I probably think what might have happened is you saw your daughter and you and you saw your wife and you thought to yourself, just a minute, am I making this about my me and probably the past and all the trauma that you had suffered, maybe that was there and you were using this as an excuse maybe to go, okay, I don't know how to cope or I don't know how to deal with it. But then you took it away from yourself and said, just a minute, I want to be there for my daughter. I don't even know if, it's, if it was an excuse. My wife has told me, in recent months because she's comfortable to talk about it she said i used to go to my room by myself close the door and put on all these old songs sorry um sorry i'm not saying people that are old listen to these music but you know warren zevon werewolves of london the doors over and over again you know acdc and standing on tables and screaming these songs and talking to people who i used to party with when I was a teenager these older older friends and foes and they're no longer with us they've passed away so it's almost this there was also an element of a search for nostalgia a search for a party and a place which no longer exists and once again trying to return to a place that will never ever be and no longer is but I was chasing a party and it was never good enough and it was never going to be good enough because <laughs> it's never going to be that way again, right? It sounded a bit like the the abusive or self-abusive rock star you know, yeah. that just has too much and, and you get to a point where you, you get fame and you get money and you get to be on top of the mountain of, of being the rock and roll king mm. and it's not enough. One, one scary realisation I had, Paul, about... Because I used to drink and float from bar to bar. And I used to think people talked to me because they liked me and they liked the conversation. But I was forcing myself upon others in a space. And people were probably sometimes even intimidated or scared because I was probably quite loose. So it's interesting, when I turn the perspective, am I being respectful to others who may be having an intimate evening and going in and starting to drink with them and share my story do they want to hear that probably not so that was a big thing to also understand was that i was being disruptive at times toward others 
and I didn't think that was the case. <laughs> Bit of ego there. Um, I remember uh, coming to Japan, and uh, we got uh, we, we had a drinking session one day. I was there with my boys, and we come to Japan, and uh, you we we started the evening off and went on fine. Halfway through the evening, you did start to turn into that person, and I I I, I said to you, uh, you can stop being a bully now. Yeah, I remember that. And your face, I, that's the first time I'd ever told you off uh, in a real, because you, you like, I've never really told you off. I've always, you know, given you an opinion. Allowed it. But not, not told you off. So here I was being daddy all of a sudden saying, that behaviour is unacceptable. You are bullying others and me. Are you aware of that? Mm. And you just stopped in your tracks and you just couldn't quite comprehend what I'd just said. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was like, am I really doing that? Am, am, mm. Is that who I am? Am I pushing my agenda onto yep. others for my own entertainment or my own what needs or whatever it is that's going on and what's what's that person and this is the, the, the idea of where I think you might also be a split personality in when you do have the uh, drinking, the mm. alcohol, mm. that creates you into a person that is a different person than who you are normally because the alcohol turns you into somewhat a Jekyll and Hyde scenario yeah, absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. And some people will seem to be able to have alcohol and turn into something that's maybe more jovial or more freer. Or just, some people just relax. Just, just relax. Unwind. Some people, some people. I know my father had an issue. It would turn him into someone who was quick to argue and he would, be, mm. he would turn into a somewhat ang angry person often and not a pleasant person to be with. But it was, it, I know alcohol must, be, must influence and affect people in all different ways. But interestingly, in Japan, I noticed that alcohol is available everywhere. It's on the street in front of your eyes. It's like you just put 20 cents or you put money in the, in the machine and there it is. And it's like alcohol is part of the culture very much over there. Very much readily available, very much acceptable, even if at night you were to be... Um, outrageous or outlandish it's excusable because it's not you it's the sake it's the alcohol so it's very much a waning of personal responsibility when there is alcohol involved so yeah it is basically the only go-to for most people and it's you can drink anywhere on trains in parks very cheap and high percentage but I, I suppose it's like anywhere, but I think there is a lot of social pressure. I've seen a lot of businessmen asleep on trains and there's also a lot of all you can drink. So it's two hours, $30 equivalent Australia, $30, $40. I think any place like that would fold within a week in Australia. But in Japan, all you can drink restaurants still operate. So... Yeah, it's quite incredible. When, when I went there with you, uh, every time I go there, I was... I was always taken back by the young people who were. It, it didn't, even though there was so much order in the in the in the way people do things, and there was so much respect, politeness, and and all of that. Um, you could also notice that there was a acceptance of the drinking culture, yeah, and that the drinking was also part of the communicating or the letting one go from the stringent orderly way of living because the orderly way of living you know the, the way that people are just doing their work and very work orientated and focused on you know, order and respectful 
you know, doing everything in a certain way. And then you watch these young people and they such an interesting, but they seem to be able to be a little bit less inhibited when, <laughs> when they were drinking and that, yeah. that's what encouraged that drinking. Thank you, listeners. That was Nathan sharing from the heart in episode two. Now let's look forward to what he has to say in episode three. That's another episode from Podcast with Paul. Special thanks, everyone. Remember to keep an eye out for our next exciting episode with more fun special guests. Find out more of what we're all about and look up the Laughter Project. Hey, everyone. Be happy. now that you're here, girl, I don't know what to say.